Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to this Microphilosophy podcast. Psychologists and philosophers puzzle over the nature of evil and debate whether it even exists. But perhaps we can get more insight into these questions by looking carefully at real-life examples of the phenomenon. Two writers who have done this are Richard Lloyd Parry in his book People Who Eat Darkness and Tobias Jones in his Blood on the Altar. I spoke to both of them at a recent event at Foils in Bristol, organised in association with the Bristol Festival of Ideas. This evening we have two books which are both very distinctive but similar in many ways in terms of their themes. Both are really about a couple of extraordinary cases of real-life crime, but they're certainly not sort of schlock horror books at all, both very <coughs> meticulously researched and very thoughtful. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Richard, because your book was about the Lucy Blackman case. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Uh, Lucy Blackman came to Tokyo in 2000 to work as a bar hostess in Roppongi, which is one of the uh, more exciting nightlife areas of Tokyo. And she disappeared one day, having gone out to meet a customer from the bar where she worked. And for seven months, no one knew what had happened to her. You may remember her father and her sister came out and spent a lot of time looking for her and were in the papers and on TV a lot. And there were no clues for a long time. And then her remains were found dismembered and buried in a seaside cave not so far from Tokyo. And by that time, a man had been arrested and charged with a number of crimes. He was eventually charged with eight rapes of women who survived and the killing and rape of two other girls, one of whom was Lucy Blackman. And the trial went on and it went on and it went on and it only finished at the very end of 2010. So it was over 10 years in the courts. And the killer, we can't call him a murderer because he wasn't charged with murder, was convicted of everything, all the many charges against him, except one, that of killing Lucy Blackman. Tobias, you, you, your cases are perhaps so well known, so perhaps you could also tell us a little bit about your case, uh, an even longer time period than Richard's from, from beginning to end. Yeah, it, it's another disappearance. In many ways, it's the Italian Madeleine McCann, although this girl was much, much older. She was 16 years old. And in 1993, she went missing in the centre of a city called Potenza, which is in the deep, deep south of Italy in a region called Basilicata. And it transpired that she had met a man who was four years older than her, who was known locally to have a haircutting fetish. He used to cut women's hair on the back of buses and in cinemas. So immediately his family were, were very worried. And this man had a scar on the back of his hand that he couldn't explain. And it seemed obvious that he was, he was to blame. But his father was a powerful Sicilian. The husband of the investigating magistrate to whom the accused father had links, had possible links to organised crime. The priest of the church in which this young girl went missing had vices of his own. So again, it was a mystery. Where was this girl? And over the years, I moved to Italy in the late 90s and I was fascinated by this case. And then I kind of let the story go because it, it was a mystery without any conclusion. I thought I couldn't really write it came back to, to Somerset, which is where I was born and brought up, and in 2004, a woman in Bournemouth was murdered, and she was discovered by her two young children in her bathroom with strands of hair put in her hands. And the children who discovered her ran out of the house and were comforted by an Italian man called Danilo Restivo, who was the same man that Elisa had met in 1993. 
both of your books, I think, they're quite disturbing in a way because they undermine the sort of confidence we might have that we know people, we know the difference between the good ones and the bad ones. And, and rather we find there's a, a great deal of sort of ambiguity there. Obviously, you got to know the family of the victim and came to like them a lot. In public, I guess they were as people expected them to be. But yeah, I suppose people do have problems of understanding that you know, even in the worst of times, human behaviour is very complicated. There were times, like the, the day before the, the, the opening of the trial, they came to Britain and you had a nice evening with them, cracking jokes, eating. And people almost say, don't want to hear that, do they? They want to think that you must now be permanently miserable for the rest of your lives or else no sympathy anymore. Yeah, I mean, I was very nervous the first time I met the family because they'd been on TV a lot and understandably had a very, very rigid, stern, stony face to the outside world and thought crikey these people understandably aren't going to suffer fools and actually when you met them you had a lot of laughs you know they were like you or I but for the tragedy. Tim Blackman I think suffered a lot because although in some ways he played the media game very carefully he did not fit the image of what was expected of the grieving father and as a result he got criticism. Yes after she disappeared uh, a crew of quite tough experienced tabloid reporters came out to Tokyo to investigate the story for a couple of weeks. And these rather hard-nosed characters were were very suspicious of of Tim Blackman for the simple reason that he was so helpful and nice to them. He would always give an interview, he would always pose for the photograph, and they thought there must be something funny going on. There wasn't at all. He had simply made the strategic decision that the way he could best put pressure on the police to find his daughter was by keeping it in the papers and on TV as much as possible. And it became clear after a while that, you know, however much we think we have um, a kind of pure, undiluted sympathy for for people in situations of great stress, that family were, actually we expect them to behave in a certain way and we prefer it when they're helpless, helpless, emotional, weepy. When they're not, we all start to get rather uncomfortable. Yeah, and in fact there was one press conference though where he did finally give them that picture. He cried, didn't he? He did. He, he gave a lot of press conferences, perhaps too many, and, and by the end they weren't drawing the crowds. And there was one where, to my surprise, Tim Blackman wiped his eye and appeared to wipe away a tear. And that was something he'd always avoided doing. And he'd made quite a point of, of being strong and not exactly cheerful, but uh, focused. And years later, I asked him about it and said, you know, why was it that that moment you cracked up? And he said, well, actually, we planned that. We thought it was time for a tear. And, of course, as the hand went to the eye, all the shutters of all the cameras gratefully clicked in unison. I don't know whether this case affected you. You said a few things here. You said, even those we know best are strangers who we understand, if we ever do, intermittently. It seems that the experience had left you feeling really just unable to express any confidence at all, that you always know anybody, including yourself, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, I still seem to stumble through life maintaining certain relationships, so it hasn't been <laughs> completely terminal. I suppose when I started off on this book, I hadn't read a lot of what is known as true crime, and I, I got the classics off the shelves and, and, and read them. What would you call the classics? Uh, well, Truman Capote, yeah. you know, in True Blood, Execution of Song by yeah. Norman Mailer. Gordon Byrne, a few books about the West. And there seems to be a convention that towards the end of the, of the book, the author of a true crime novel dons Dr. Freud's hat or pince nez or whatever and head shrinks the killer and looks into his childhood, his whatever influences that have been on him, and sums it all up and explains in you know, armchair psychiatric terms how he became what he was. And I think I assumed that I would do the same thing at some point. Uh, and I just kept hitting a brick wall. I mean, really coming up with so little on, on this character. 
to the extent that I, I decided in the end that that was the defining thing about him, really, was, was, was absences, an, an absence of, of relationships, and an absence of, of, of a kind of inner story, almost as if that was what defined him. And I stopped worrying in the end about not being able to crack him like a nut and produce a little kernel inside. And I suppose took a, yes, a fairly pessimistic view, at least of his nature, if not of human nature. But perhaps there's just nothing there, and that's the scariest thing of all. But, uh, I mean, on the human nature thing, the thing I found most frustrating writing the book, and I read in between the lines, I, I guess it was the same for you, is I spent a long time trying to understand the murderer and what makes someone into a hair fetishist. What makes someone go to the back of cinemas and cut women's hair? What, what's going on there? And why leave hair in the, the hands of, of a murder victim? And not just the murder victim's hair, but someone else's hair that he'd taken to the crime scene on which there's been meticulous forensic evidence that says this murder victim changed her diet three times, was in Tampa, Florida, and was in Almeria in Spain, and all this detail, and it's still a mystery. So you have so many questions to ask the, the culprit, and yet it's impossible. And that's the yeah. frustrating thing writing this book, because you think, you know, what happened in his family? And obviously, you know, if you go and doorstep a powerful Sicilian saying, you know, how did you set, turn your son into a serial killer? He's not going to give you a lot of time. And it is interesting, sort of, again, the sort of things reviewers say, critics say, publicity blurbs say, is they'll use a, one set of adjectives, which is compelling, gripping, can't put it down, page-turning, which is true of these books, for sure. And also, the other words will be like gruesome, macabre, etc., etc. These these two sets of adjectives do seem to go together. Why is it that these horrendous, appalling things are actually so compelling? And I, I don't want to suggest that as something which is universally true, because I've met people who know I'm reading this books, and they have no interest at all in reading them. They don't understand why other people would want to come along this evening. They think you're all weird here. You know, why are you interested in this gruesome crime? They think you're even weirder for, for dedicated lives to writing books about it. So what is it that makes this thing compelling? And what makes it okay to, to go with that? Should we be fighting this? Is it not voyeuristic? I hadn't realised until publishing this book what a lot of um, generic snobbery there is about true crime. You know, a number of the, the critics, some of the quite distinguished, uh, felt they had to make a point early on in the review that I would never normally read a book like this. <laughs> but it's about Japan as well as crime, so, you know, that, that, that makes it respectable. I mean, one reviewer um, described the book and said, um, you know, it, it, it's quite well done, but I just couldn't recommend it to anyone because it's too sad. Personally, I recommend the Mr. Men books to him because they're mm -hmm. very <laughs> I mean, surely it's obvious, isn't it, that, that, that in, in, in fiction, drama, as well as in non-fiction, there's an ancient tradition of sad and sometimes gruesome stories which people nonetheless find compelling, entertaining, enjoyable for complicated reasons and philosophers and literary critics have scratched their heads over why that is. I don't see why the rules should be any different for non-fiction as for fiction. Mm. What do you think the, of this voyeuristic? You had this voyeuristic sort of accusation of... Uh, yeah, and I, I've got to say I share it. I mean, I personally still think, I'm afraid, that unless it's handled very, very sensitively and done very well, there is something slightly possibly tawdry about true crime. You know, people's responses are, as you say, they either say, oh, is that your new book? Oh, I love a good murder. Or they say, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't go near it with a barge pile. And, I, you know, I, I can understand both reactions. I mean, I think our fascination with it is 
kind of anthropological. It, it's fascinating the sort of the depths to which humans will sink as well as the heights to which they'll soar. You know, it's, it's the depravity of human nature is sadly fascinating. And we, we should try and understand that. It seems to me, again, both books did provide some kind of insight, uh, which I don't think you can get from purely theoretical works about things like, you know, moral ambiguity. But also there's the effect of, of understanding people. I, I was struck in, in both your books how certain people at certain times found themselves understanding these awful people and having a certain amount of sympathy. So Tim Blackman said at one point he felt sorry for this Jojo Abada guy. And Tobias, you reported, you know, when you finally saw Restivo in the court, that after years of imagining him to be some kind of monster, you're surprised to find yourself almost feeling sorry for him. And Gildo, the brother of Elisa, says, you know, uh, that he didn't have any anger towards him at one point, that he needed to be taken out of circulation, but he's not the problem. But yeah, there's this saying, isn't there, that to understand all is to forgive all, which is clearly not what happened in this situation. People didn't forgive. But there was something, it was quite extraordinary to see that even with these people who are so close to someone who had done something awful to someone so close to them, that it was still possible to have a kind of understanding which meant there was more than just hatred and vengeance left there. It's difficult to summarise, you know, your feelings <coughs> to someone who's done the most horrific things. But when, when you saw him in court and he was just a loser... He was the ultimate loser. And all the people who described him in Potenza said he was kind of clumsy and a bit sad and a bit, you know, jinxed. And, and I mean, one of the most fascinating things was watching a very, very high-powered barrister pick him apart bit by bit. And as with your culprit, he's a fantasist, isn't he? The fantasy world that they inhabit, to see it sort of crumbling in court was fascinating. Mm. It seems to be that almost invariably when you hear about these awful cases, the murderers themselves, their lives are awful tragedies, aren't they? I mean, they are disasters, often from the beginning. The, the act he, he, he perpetrated repeatedly over decades, you know, his predations on literally helpless, unconscious women, uh, you know, are, are unspeakable, completely unforgivable. But at the same time, the longer I you know, worked on this story and, and talked to people like Lucy's family and, and, and other victims, the harder it became just to use terms like good and evil and wicked. And you just realise how inadequate they are. I mean, they, they don't get you anywhere. You can call them evil, fine. It, it doesn't enlarge your understanding of what he is or what happened. It, it's not that, that there are any kind of moral grey areas because the morality is black and white, as is the law. But he was complicated, immensely complicated. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, he, he became the personality he did for very complicated reasons, which I only really began to, to scratch at. But I'm interested in complexity rather than the easy labels. Because they were both very privileged, you know. You know, your yeah. guy was incredibly rich. And Restiva's father was, like I say, a powerful bigwig in, in the city. These weren't your sort mm. of underprivileged, sink estate kind of characters they were from very very yeah hard well to see as victims of the conventional yeah. way yeah. sure although, although a lot of people say oh well boo-hoo when people say things like this but you know you'd say emotionally they weren't were they i mean the guy at bar you know never had a friend and all that stuff now we don't expect to sort of like say oh therefore poor love let him off but you know as you say it's more complicated you, you say that you know we prefer just to think of them as evil because that makes it manageable doesn't it yeah it lets and, everyone else off the hook but also I think what's interesting is when you see the behaviour of other people around it as well. Because obviously in the case of the people who perpetrate these things, as you say, there's no ambiguity about the actions, at least, even if you come to sort of see them as something other than, than pure evil. But the way other people behave, and you see the sort of perhaps the, the shades of grey 
Tim Blackman took this money off this guy. Now, apparently, this isn't quite in the cultural context. It's perhaps not as outrageous as it sounds. And he got he got pilloried for that in the UK. But even there, you know, it is more complicated than that, isn't it? Yes, I mean, in, in, in Japanese criminal cases, you sometimes get situations like this. Supposing I'm driving drunk and I knock you over and injure you badly and I'm charged and, and taken to court... I might stand up before the judge and say, I've done a terrible thing, I've done this stupid, wicked thing, I'm very sorry, um, I want to make amends, and as a token of this, here's a receipt for the uh, medical bills of the victim, and here's a receipt for £20,000 or whatever that I've given him as a way of saying sorry. In Japan, this kind of thing happens quite often, and the judge might look at that and say, well, this person has shown that they generally want to make amends, I'll I'll give a, a lighter sentence than I would to someone who didn't produce this receipt. But that wasn't what happened in the case of Giorgio Barra. Giorgio Barra, throughout his trial, and and with regard to all the charges against him, denied all criminal responsibility. He said he had nothing to do with any of it. But at some point, he contacted the the family, including Tim Blackman, and said something like this. "Um, Like many people, I'm very sad about what what happened to Lucy. It was nothing to do with me, but would you accept half a million pounds? Just to show how sorry I am. And of course, his intention, his hope, was this, that this would affect the trial. But it didn't affect the trial, in fact. The judges in, in all the uh, appeal courts said so in writing. They noted that this money had been paid, but said it can't, really can't make any difference. And he got the heaviest sentence he could possibly have done, which was life. So Tim Blackman, in, in accepting that money, was subject to great, great criticism, much of it rather self-righteous in my view. To keep it all very brief, as far as I'm concerned, there's only one question about that money, and that is, did it affect the workings of justice? It didn't, in fact. Having settled that question, I don't think it's anyone's business. Certainly not the business of someone who has not suffered that kind of loss to, uh, to judge someone for either accepting that money or rejecting it. One thing you said, I will quote it because I think it was very stupid. You said, you know, we find it exciting to imagine ourselves in extreme circumstances in which we are tested morally and physically. In our own minds, we always pass such a test. But your point being, we, we never know how we would react unless we're in that situation and we can't really pass judgment. And in the case of Tim Blackman, <coughs> another point I think you make very, very well is that his refusal to act in a conventional way sort of like challenges our own moral certainties that we know what we're doing. People are bound to think, spending so much time thinking about this, writing about it, it must affect you, it must have changed you. Do, do you feel this has in some ways changed things? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly researching it and writing it was incredibly involving and draining and tough. But I think sort of it, it helps you understand suffering. You know, you can't imagine any suffering greater than not just having your child killed, but not knowing where they are, you know, for more than a decade. But yeah, no, it does change you. You know, it's, it's a cliche, but it happens, so I'll say it. You know, you do wake up in the middle of the night and, and sort of see this poor girl's mummified body and, or, you know, you saw sort of see strands of hair in the, in the street corner and kind of think about that weird hair fetishist. You know, it does kind of sink a hook in you. Richard? Uh, I mean, I think it, it, it blew away, uh, you know, a lot of my kind of hazier, poorly thought-out ideas about the, the kind of people I write about in the book, families who've, who've experienced <coughs> loss, the workings of loss, you know, killers, good and evil, the sort of things I was talking about earlier. There is a lot more to both of these books than simply gruesome tales of horrible 
suffering and murder so I can recommend them both to you so it only leads me to thank you all for coming out this evening and to thank uh, both of these guys for a really really interesting conversation thanks also to the Bristol Festival of Ideas and to Foyle's Books for information on future microphilosophy events podcasts and much more visit microphilosophy.net or follow the microphilosophy twitter feed So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.